Well, hey, Sanctus Church, it's so great to be with you this morning. My name is Joel. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, for those of you who do know me, I can guarantee you I miss you. I miss you so much. It's such a pleasure uh, to be sharing with you this morning. 2020 has been such a crazy year. I mean, this is actually the freshest air that I've breathed in the last two weeks. Uh, I was exposed to someone who got COVID. We didn't know it at the time. We were having breakfast. A couple days later, he texted, sent that he tested positive. So we had to lock down. We went and got tested. We were negative, all good. But I've been on lockdown in my house until literally right now. So it's really nice to be with you, even though I'm not physically with you. I hope you're doing well. We're uh, approaching the end of our series in 2 Timothy. Uh, if you want to follow along with me this morning, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you what I want to do right off the top here. I, I, I really hope to encourage you this morning. I was encouraged as I dove into this rather unique passage near the end of the letter. Paul gets very transparent with Timothy in a way that he hasn't before. And he kind of lets us in behind the scenes about how he's been doing throughout the letter. Because how he describes his condition in this passage is not anything new. He's been going through this the whole time that we've been in this series with Pastor John. This has been his condition. We know he's in prison, and that would have been bad. But as you read it with me, look, there's, there's actually much more going on. He's in really rough shape. Paul's in really rough shape. Let's read it together. Paul writes, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. So you too, Timothy, you should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Paul's in really rough shape. First of all, he was deserted by his friends. In this passage alone, he names eight different people. Now, Crescens, Ty Titus, and Tychus, they're all gone for good reason. He's not mad at them. They didn't desert him. They're off doing missions work. He sent them out. Mark and Carpus are fine. Paul just like really wants Mark to come hang out with them and help him with his ministry. Luke is with him. He's the only person who is with him. And, he's, and that's likely because Luke was a doctor and he was able to care for Paul's needs. But Demas is totally different. You, you can tell that this was especially painful, painful for Paul. Read what he says in verse 10. He says, For Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. See, Paul and Demas used to do ministry together. They were pastors in the same church, so to speak. He called him a fellow worker in Colossians 4 and Philemon. But here he says that he has deserted Paul and deserted the ministry and, and most likely deserted the faith altogether for the world. And, and you can just see that Paul is really broken up over this as he sits in prison. Secondly, Paul was opposed strongly by this guy named Alexander. Now, there's a couple things we don't know because Paul doesn't go into great detail. We, we don't know Alexander's true identity. Uh, it's unlikely, in my opinion, that it's the same Alexander mentioned in 1 Timothy 1 or Acts 19. And we don't know exactly what the great harm that he caused Paul was. But what we do know is that he did cause Paul and the church and the gospel great harm. And he strongly opposed the church, Paul's words. Now, opposition was normal. Paul was used to it, but this was different. Perhaps 
Alexander, in the way that he strongly opposed what they were doing, perhaps he was responsible even for martyring some of Paul's co-workers, some believers. It's, it's certainly possible. Perhaps, and this is what I think is likely, perhaps he was even the reason Paul is in prison. There's reason to believe in the text that what he's saying is that he brought false accusations forward about Paul, and that's what landed him here in this prison sentence. But either way, Paul is not only deserted by his friends, but he's been opposed fiercely by Alexander and likely others. And thirdly, Paul says that he was unsupported at his first defense in verse 16. Now, first defense likely refers to a a preliminary hearing before the emperor or a magistrate in the Roman legal system, which would be roughly comparable to us for a grand jury hearing. It was essentially the first phase of his present trial. Now, this was a separate trial and imprisonment than we read about near the end of Acts, a separate altogether What we don't know is the charges that were laid against him, but listen to what John Stott comments about this. He says, but we do know the kind of allegations which were being made against Christians at this time. They were accused of atheism because they eschewed idolatry and emperor worship. They were accused of cannibalism because they spoke of eating Christ's body and even of a general hatred of the human race because of their supposed disloyalty to Caesar and perhaps because they had renounced popular pleasures of sin. It may be that some of these charges were leveled against Paul. Whatever the case for the prosecution, he had no one to defend him except himself. Either because Christian friends could not or would not, he was unsupported and alone. Now, if you know Paul's life and ministry career even a little bit, just think for a second of all the churches that he has planted over the course of his life all the pastors he raised up, how many Gentiles he led to Christ, and yet no one came to his support. Now, their absence and their silence was not likely because they hated Paul that they turned on him. It was because, most likely, of fear. And I wonder if this is why Paul began this letter by reminding Timothy that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And maybe it's also why he wrote in in verse 8 of the first chapter, not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. That is likely the reason why he was unsupported and alone in his first trial. See, Paul's in rough shape. He's deserted by his friends. He's opposed by Alexander and others, and he's unsupported at his first defense. But there's still more going on. If we read a little bit deeper, you can really see Paul's humanity. And that's why I love this passage. I think Paul's lonely, like just like any one of us could be lonely, lonely during COVID, lonely in prison. Apart from being alone at his trial, he was alone in his prison cell and he was lonely. In, in, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 4, he says, I long to see you, 2 Timothy, sorry. He says, I long to see you and begins this passage by saying, come quickly. I think he really wants to see his friend, Timothy. I think he really misses him. I think even though Luke is there with him, All the people he knows and has done ministry with, he is alone and he's feeling like any one of us would feel, very lonely. Secondly, he's either cold or he's about to be cold. Uh, He asks Timothy to bring his coat for him that he left in Troas. He knows winter is coming. Now imagine having to ask for somebody to bring you your coat in time for winter. This would be a long journey for Timothy. He had to ask him now in order for him to get his coat before winter came. This was not a prison like we think in our minds that we see on Netflix documentaries. They wouldn't have given him anything to stay warm. And he knows, he's been in prison before, if he doesn't get his coat by winter time, it's going to be real trouble. Now, 
I'll be honest, when I first read this passage, my eyes were drawn to this sentence about bringing his cloak from Troas. And I'm thinking, how am I going to possibly preach about Paul's cloak? But then it, it, it dawned on me. This giant of the faith is dealing with practical, real-life issues. He, he's a superhero in our faith, but he's just like us. He's just a human being, and he's lonely, and he's cold. And thirdly, I believe he's even bored. He's sitting in prison, and he's bored. Speaking of him being just like us, he asked Timothy to bring his scrolls and his parchments. Now, scholars believe that these could have been Paul's version of the Old Testament in Greek, maybe even parts of what we now call the New Testament. He needed something to pass the time, but not just pass the time. Even in his old age, and even on death row, as we're about to see, he still wanted to learn. He still wanted to write. He still wanted to impact. Paul wasn't done yet. See, Paul's lonely, cold, and bored. He's been deserted by his friends, most painfully by Demas. He's been opposed at every corner, most notably by Alexander. And apart from Luke, he's been alone in prison and unsupported through his trial. Paul's in real rough shape, but he has peace. Paul's in rough shape, but he has peace. We, we are blessed to live in such an amazing part of the world, and, and Ontario is filled with lakes and rivers, and it's one of the things I love about it. If you think of lakes and, and rivers, particularly in Toronto, in the city, you think of the big ones like the Don and the Humber. But before Toronto was a busy city, there were rivers all over the place. And as the city was first being built, builders found that it was actually quite difficult to completely erase a river. And many of the waterways that once penetrated downtown Toronto are now buried. They're still there. But they're buried under buildings, and, and, they, and they're, they're, they're still there. They're just under everything. They are underground. One of these rivers that used to be above ground was called Castle Frank Brook, which was the product of several smaller rivers that met near Cedarvale Park. Now, today, Castle Frank Brook cuts underground under St. Clair West Station, rises again at Sir Winston Churchill Park, and vanishes back into a sewer that carries it down under Rosedale Valley Road into the Don River. It's still there. With all those skyscrapers and highways and buildings and condos, that brook is still there. The builders found that they just couldn't get rid of it. It was so stubborn, it was just there, that they just built right on top of it. And here's where I'm going with this. Paul has peace like a subterranean river. It's like a subterranean river of peace that can't be erased, no matter how bad the circumstances are in his life. And if that's true, we, we better lean in and figure out how he was able to maintain peace when his life was literally falling apart. Because he's about to be executed. His, his life is coming to an end. He is sitting on death row. How could he have peace? Well, the first thing I believe is that he knows God is just. He knows God is a God of justice. Did you notice what Paul said to Timothy after he told him how much harm Alexander caused him? It's so significant. Verse 14. He says, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. This picks up an idea Paul wrote about earlier in Romans chapter 12. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Excuse me. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, Paul is able to have peace in the midst of his suffering, in part because God is, he knows God is not going to let any evil deed be ignored. 
and he's let go of the need for him to take revenge and get even himself. As Pastor John has preached just last week, there is a final judgment coming for everyone. And that might sound terrifying. And if you don't know Christ, perhaps it is. Perhaps it should feel that way a little bit. But for those of us who do know Christ, it's liberating. And it's a source of peace for us. Because how do we rest? How do we rest on a soul level when evil in our world goes unpunished? The world has no answer for this. The world has no answer. And whatever answers they have, I believe, are insufficient. What, what do we do with the perpetrators of the attacks on 9-11? The people who flew those planes into those buildings and died on impact, they never had a chance to face earthly justice. They were never prosecuted, sent to court, sent to prison. Where's the justice there? The world has no response for that. But the Bible does, strongly. And it says that God is going to have the last word. And whatever requires justice Justice will be given. He is a God of mercy and a God of grace. But when evil is done, it requires a response. It requires justice. And Paul knows that the injustice that has been leveled against him will be dealt with by God in the end. Even if it's not being dealt with now. Even if he's the one in prison. God will deal with it in the end. The second thing that brings Paul peace is that he knows God was with him through everything. And he still is with him. And he's still going to be with him. Verse 17. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Amazing, amazing words. See, when when Paul's friends deserted him, God didn't desert him. When his enemies opposed him, God was there with him. When no one supported him in court, God, quote, stood by him. And as long as, and, and, and as he writes these words as an old man in prison, cold, lonely, even bored, God's presence is with him, even in that prison cell, and he knows it. In fact, I believe he is experiencing what we like to call a guaranteed place of encounter. John talks about this, the guaranteed sources of power, the spiritual gifts, the guaranteed places of encounter, things like gathering for church, gathering your connect group, reading the Bible. Suffering is a guaranteed place of encounter. And and I've kind of jokingly said to John before, I actually think it's the strongest one. I think it is the most guaranteed place of encounter, suffering. And Paul is experiencing the presence of God in this prison cell, even though he's having such a rough time. And that brings him peace. And lastly, the third thing that brings him peace is that he knows that he has endured till the end. Remember what he said last week that John brought us through these famous words? He he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. See, like I said, suffering and hardship and betrayal and opposition, this is nothing new for Paul. Make no mistake, it was a fight, his life. The impact that he made for the kingdom, it was a race and, and a marathon kind of race. But Paul endured, and now he is at the end, and he knows that he made it. He knows he endured till the end. He didn't quit like Demas did, and that does not make him feel spiteful. That makes him feel maybe proud, certainly peaceful, because he knows that he's made it. Paul kept going. Even in his pain, his exhaustion, his suffering, Paul had peace because he knew that God is just, that, he, that, that, that God was with him, has been with him all along, still is and evermore will be. And he knows that he endured to the end. But deeper than that, not only does Paul have peace about the past, 
he actually has this joyful anticipation about the future. Paul has hope. Paul even has vision. And this is staggering and should jump off the page because he is literally days away from being killed. And he knows it. He doesn't know if it's days. It could prolong itself a little bit. But as tradition holds, yes, it was just a few more days until he was executed. He knew he was on death row. How could he have joy about the future? How could he have anticipation and hope and vision for his life when he's days away from the end? He knows, as he said in verse 6, the time of his departure is near. Well, the first thing is, he knows the gospel message is still moving forward. His time on earth might be done, but the gospel is just getting started. He spent his life planting churches and raising up leaders, and it is multiplying throughout the world. He knows the church is going to grow so much more after his death than during his life, and that gives him so much joy and so much anticipation, even if he's not physically here on earth to see it. We're sitting here 2,000 years later, and not because of Paul, but because of the Holy Spirit. But in part, through Paul's ministry, we are here. Most of us are Gentiles. We are here in part, and the church is exploding around the world. It may be declining a bit in North America, but it is exploding around the world. And Paul is such a key figure in the church's growth. And I think he has a sense of that near the end of his life. Follow me here for a second, but you know when you're trying to do one important thing and everything else in the world is bad, but that one important thing is going well, so you're okay? Like, if, if you're trying to raise your kids in the faith, and, and your life is kind of in shambles and falling apart and very difficult, but your kids are actually following Jesus, you kind of have this sense of like, okay, that's bad. But this one important thing is really good, and that brings me joy in the midst of chaos. What if you're trying to overcome alcoholism? And you're actually doing it. You're actually staying sober. Your, your life is kind of falling apart around the seams, but you're actually doing it. You're staying sober. And you have joy in the midst of everything else because you know that you're crushing the one most important thing. I think that's Paul's perspective. I think he thinks like, oh man, I'm so lonely, bored, cold, deserted, opposed, unsupported. But look what I did with my life. And, and, and not in pride, but like looking back and saying, I made a real impact. And the gospel is still moving forward despite my suffering. And he knows nothing is more important. In fact, I would argue that the gospel is, argue, it's, it's true. The gospel was moving forward because of his suffering. Again, in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. As one of my favorites, Gordon Fee, points out, Paul took full advantage of the inquiry to give the real reason for his arrest. Just like he did at his similar preliminary hearing at the end of Acts, he took this unique opportunity in front of emperors and magistrates and all these important people, these, these Gentiles who didn't know Jesus, and instead of just giving a testimony, he gives the testimony. He shares the gospel. And where else do you get an opportunity to preach to people like that in, in that way? So he's excited because he knows he's really making a difference in these unique circumstances. And this brings him joy and anticipation for the future because he knows he's still making an impact for God even in his final days. There was uh, a man I knew who died a few years ago. His name was Irving Witt. Some of you might actually know him. He's kind of a hero of the faith in some uh, particularly Pentecostal circles. Uh, he spent his life working in ministry and just died a few years ago. He was a close family friend of ours, particularly to my mom and dad. 
He spent his life doing missions work around the world. And my mom worked with him in the last few years of his life here in Canada, uh, doing missions work around the world from here. A few years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer and he knew it was terminal, but he kept working. He kept going for another about 14 or 15 months. He, he knew the end was coming, but he kept going. My mom said he would even have meetings at home where, where she would have to come because he couldn't go out. And, and, and over time, his, his problem-solving ability began to go. But he always wanted to talk about raising up leaders. And my mom figured out that this was still his passion. And, and when, you know, he would get distracted or unfocused, she would ask him questions about raising up leaders in places like Africa. And he would just go off on his, on his passion. He died a few months later. He died 22 months after his diagnosis. But like Paul, Irving kept going till the very end. I remember sitting in his funeral thinking to myself, I made a real mistake by not spending more time with him. Like I, I could have called him up and asked him to go for a coffee and just picked his brain about life and ministry because this was a man who really understood what was most important. And I believe that even as he was facing death, he had this same sense of peace and joy and anticipation because he had his priorities straight. He knew how he spent his life. He knew that what he had done would multiply after him. And yes, that work is still going on. And, and, and like Irving, Paul knows that the gospel message is still moving forward as Paul sits in this prison cell awaiting death. Secondly, Paul knows that he will be delivered and rescued. Now that sounds great, but let's dive in a little closer. He says, I was delivered from the lion's mouth at my trial. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. These are remarkable words considering he knows he's about to be executed. But he is not talking about being rescued from his trial and he's not talking about being rescued from the Romans. He is talking about being rescued and delivered from his life on earth only because it's time. He's, be, he's talking that he's going to be rescued and delivered from his earthly sufferings and brought safely into Christ's heavenly kingdom. And this is his source of hope. This is his source of vision for his life, even in old age and pain. He knows that we do not mourn as those who have no hope because this is not all there is. He knows that earthly death was not the end for him. And, and, and I think, you know, separate to Sanctus, I think as believers, we, we, we spend way too little time talking about heaven. And I was so glad that John really emphasized this well last week. This is not the end. There is more. And, and Paul knows that he is going to be delivered and rescued from his present trials. And thirdly, he knows what is waiting for him when he gets there. In, in 4 verse 8, he says, last week's passage, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. See, no matter his present sufferings, he's about to go home. And he knows it. He's about to go to a place where, as the scriptures say in Revelation, there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He knows he's going to be rewarded for his obedience and his endurance, rewarded that he endured till the end. He has his eyes fixed on the right thing. And as a result, he has the strength to endure and a peace that passes all understanding in a joyful anticipation of the future. I could use some of that. I think in this crazy year that we're in 2020, we could all use some of that. I wonder if what many of us really need is a, a, a perspective shift. 
a perspective shift. It's kind of like John said last week, you know, sometimes you need surgery, but sometimes what you really need is like this kind of chiropractic adjustment. You go in and you go out, and we didn't have to perform open heart surgery, but you're leaving different than you came in. I wonder if many of us actually need a perspective shift. I was uh, privileged to take a sabbatical this summer. Some of you know this. So thankful to the leadership of Sanctus for allowing me to do this. I was off for three months with my family, a little bit different during COVID, but it turned out to be just perfect, just wonderful. And, you know, if you don't come out of a sabbatical with a perspective shift, I think you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Thankfully, I, I, I certainly did. It was a chance for me to really reevaluate what my values are and what is most important to me. And, you know, things like family and relationships and, and, and things like that. But there was this most profoundly in my sabbatical, the perspective shift came from this open-handedness to God. That like, whatever you want, God, I, I, I am more open-handed to you now than I've ever been before. And no matter what's going on in your life, if you can remain open-handed, if you can have the right perspective If you can have Paul's mindset as he's here in prison, I really believe you can go through almost anything, if not anything in this life, as long as you have your perspective in the right way, a biblical, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered perspective. Like take COVID, for for example. We all want it to go away, (laughs) but it it hasn't gone away yet. And And my question to you is, do you have peace even though it's still here? If, if you don't have the means, have peace in the midst of COVID or take whatever situation that you're dealing with that I couldn't possibly know. Has it gone away yet? I bet you're praying that it goes away. Keep doing that. That's fine. But why hasn't it gone away yet? And, and how are you doing in the middle? I, I believe what the scriptures teach the most is that God does not always take our suffering away when we ask for it. But what he does guarantee to do is meet us in the midst of it and give us this perspective that he has so clearly given to Paul. Do you have peace in the midst of what you're going through right now? If you don't, you need this kind of perspective shift. You need it. You will be better off with it. If you don't have hope, if you don't have joy, if you don't have vision and anticipation for the future, no matter if you're days away from the end, no matter if you just lost your job, no matter what you're going through, the scriptures declare you can still have hope and joy and vision and peace and anticipation for the future in your life. And if you don't, you need this perspective shift. And only the Holy Spirit can give this to you. I'm not telling you to try harder. I'm telling you, look at what God is teaching us in this passage. Look at what he did in Paul. I mean, we we know how Paul was before the Holy Spirit got a hold of him. We can read about that. And look how he is at the end of his life. I hope I'm like this at the end of my life. I hope I'm not going through as much hardship as he is at the end of my life. But I hope I have this sense of peace and hope and joy. If I can encourage you with one thing this morning, as I said right off the top, I want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you to keep going. I want to encourage you to keep going. I want to encourage you not to die before you die. Don't die before you die. Listen to what Eugene Peterson writes in his book, Running with the Horses. He says, The terrible threat against life is not death, nor pain, nor any variation on the disasters that we so obsessively try to protect ourselves against with our social systems and personal stratagems. The, The terrible threat is that we might die earlier than we really do die before death has become a natural necessity. 
The real horror lies in just such a premature death, a death after which we go on living for many years, a death in which you, you don't keep going, even though you're still living. He writes this a few pages later. He says, life is not an inevitable decline into dullness. I love that. Life is not an inevitable decline into dullness. For some, it is an ascent into excellence. You know, sometimes I wonder if for me and my wife, Nicole, and our, our amazing, beautiful daughter, Sophie, she's two and a half, I, I think sometimes, are these the good old days? And, I, and I've thought a lot about it, and I, and I have two opinions. The first is, yes, they are, in the sense that I shouldn't waste them. And I should be present as much as I possibly can. And I should enjoy them because these days won't last forever. But no, these are not the good old days if the implication is life is just going to get worse from here. And enjoy it while it lasts because it's all downhill from here. No, that is an unbiblical perspective. Yes, things in my earthly life, circumstantially, they might get worse. Sure, I'm not naive enough to, to think that my, my life won't involve lots of pain and suffering. I think if you read your Bible, you have to believe and expect that it will. But that doesn't mean that my life is going to just inevitably decline. Look at Paul. His life has declined on the outside, on the inside. I want some of that. I want that joy, that peace, that hope. Our world needs that. Sanctus, we need that. And you can have it. Just keep going. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you keep going in the midst of whatever you're going through. I mean, just to get practical for a second, keep learning, keep reading, do what Paul did, keep studying the scriptures. What are you reading right now? What books do you have? What part of the Bible are you reading? You should have an answer to that question. How do we do this during COVID? I mean, studies are coming out left, right, and center. The, the mental health impact on all generations during COVID is, is huge. And I would suggest we probably haven't even grasped yet how significant it is. If, if you're younger, if you're a teenager, I, I know, I've been reading, I, I know this is hard for you, and I'm so sorry, but keep going. Get fresh air. Go outside. Do what you can. Do whatever you need to do to get through. We will get through this. Don't give up. If you're married with kids like me or single or, or just to kind of in the middle of your life, use this time like I did to reprioritize your values, your life, how you spend your time. Just don't waste this time, whatever you need to do. If you're an older person, I mean, I think this is incredibly difficult times for you as well. And you may need to isolate, but get out for walks and do what you can. Engage and please, as a younger-ish person, 30 now, can I still say that? <laughs> please tell the next generation what God has done in your life. I mean, if the only thing that you can do near the end of your life is talk or write or type, Tell the next generation, tell your kids and your grandkids and your great grandkids if you have them, what God has done because you can make such a big impact. And as a younger person, please, like, I want to hear it. I need it. We need it. And for all of us, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us get through this, to engage, to, to endure. And we need to look to Jesus. Does Paul remind you of anybody? I mean, as you've been reading this, listening to this, to me, the parallels are staggering. Jesus was also deserted by his closest friends. Jesus was opposed by the religious rulers and the Romans. Jesus was unsupported at his trial, all alone. Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just like Paul says in this passage, may it not be held against them. And Jesus died in the most lonely and uncomfortable way possible, crucified on a cross. 
But there is one major difference. There is a big difference between Paul and Jesus. Paul was rescued from evil and delivered from suffering and from death and delivered from the hardship of this world. But Jesus was handed over to evil. Jesus bore the suffering of this world. Like Isaiah predicted centuries before, he said, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And it was only because Jesus bore our suffering and took our sin that Paul could face death with peace and joy, knowing that death was not the end, only because of Jesus. Paul reminds himself and us of this in Romans 8, that if God is for us, who can be against us? And in Jesus, we learn that not even death can defeat us because Jesus defeated death. And friends, this is it for us. This is where the rubber meets the road. Jesus defeated death, so death no longer has a hold on us. Jesus suffered and died and rose again in victory, so we can know that even when we suffer and even if we die, we will rise again. And we know that this broken world is not all there is. Death and decay is not the end of our story. For us, there is more. Jesus is the beginning of our story. And one day we will see him face to face. And even now as we look to him, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. All the stuff that's happening around us, all the circumstance, the loneliness, the boredom, the coldness for Paul, knowing that he was unsupported, deserted, and opposed, these things have grown, grown dim to him. And they will grow dim to us in the light of his glorious grace. Keep going, friends. Keep going. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you came. Thank you, Lord, that you bore our suffering and our sin on that cross, that you took it all for us so that we could be free, so that we could be rescued from the lion's mouth, so we could be delivered from sin and death and darkness, and so that no matter what we go through in this life, while we're still here, we can have peace and we can have hope. We can have vision and anticipation for the future. And we know that this is not the end. It's the beginning. When we meet G you, Jesus, that is the beginning of our story. And we know that we will see you one day face to face in a place where there is no more crying or death or mourning or suffering or pain. And we choose to give you glory this morning, Lord Jesus, for, for, for you are so good. Thank you that you are with Paul in that prison cell. Would you be with us here wherever we are? whatever we're going through, fill us with peace and joy and hope and vision and let us fix our eyes on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.